So, hello everyone. Welcome to NGI's Hub and Flow podcast. I'm Chris Lenton. Today we're very lucky to have as our guest Charlie Blanchard, who's the head of North American Natural Gas Research at Trading House Mercuria Energy. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. You've just written perhaps the most exhaustive book on U.S. natural gas that I think exists, and I really enjoyed it. It's called The Extraction State, the story of natural gas's rise from unwanted byproduct to essential fuel source. Uh, I think it's almost required reading for anyone in the natural gas business, and maybe even the, the energy world at large right now. Congratulations on the book. Charlie, tell me what drove you to write the book in the first place. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of people who are in energy and uh, listening to this podcast know Daniel Jurgen's book, The Prize, which is a really great history of oil markets, you know, global oil markets. And it was not only like a really good history in that it contained great facts, but it was written in a very compelling narrative style. So it's not, you know, essentially a textbook. And I thought that I would, when I was, was kind of earlier in my career, that I would uh, try and go find the equivalent for natural gas. And of course, I found that it didn't exist. Hmm. So I tried to write it. And I don't think that I did as good a job as uh, as Dan Jurgen, but I think it's a good read. It's got some very good stories in it, very good uh, characters along the way. It does. And I think that's what, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book. Uh, you start off in, in the coal and steelmaking town of Pittsburgh in, in 1878, the, the smoky city. And you know, you can see sort of see the chimney stacks and the industrialization and sort of these newly arrived immigrants, you know, working hard. And then you have these two brothers called the Haymaker brothers who are drilling for oil and they stumble upon natural gas. But there's no obviously no pipeline and no market. And that's basically been the problem ever since. Right. With natural gas, it's, it's very tricky to control and to store and to get it to market. And it creates you know monopolies, which are tricky to regulate. Tell us a little bit about that story and, and sort of the early stages of natural gas. Yeah, well, like in so many ways, the history of the natural gas industry is the history of the natural gas pipeline industry. And as you mentioned, you know, when then you get into the natural gas pipeline industry, it becomes quickly a story of, of how people regulated the pipelines as natural monopolies, all of which kind of veers into something very boring sounding. But, you know, in, in practice, it's actually pretty kind of pretty exciting. There have been stages, you know, little, I won't call them eras, but I'll call them like intervals of time where gas was, you know, in shortage in the, in the United States. And people always talk about, you know, how it, like oil and like any kind of commodity is subject to boom and bust cycles. And that's true. What people kind of don't maybe realize all the time is that the bust cycles are generally much longer lasting than the boom cycles. It's really kind of like, you know, a year of boom and then 10 years or 20 years of bust. Mm -hmm. That, I think, characterizes the natural gas industry pretty well. And I say that because it's for the vast majority of the history of this industry, it's never been it hasn't been difficult to go get natural gas, to go and find natural gas. Mm. But what has been more difficult, more vexing at times is, is getting it from where it is to where it needs to be. And it's, and it's tough. You know, monopoly regulation, when you hear the word monopoly, I think, you know, at least as, a, as someone in the United States, you almost have this knee jerk reaction saying that's bad. Well, it's, it's not necessarily bad. I mean, everyone in the United States has a monopoly gas utility provider that provides them with you know, natural gas. Most people have the same thing for electricity. You don't really think they're bad. They just do require uh, oversight and regulation. And I think that that's, you know, something that we saw develop in the first 
first several decades of the of the gas and power industries here in the U.S. Yeah. And then um, despite this, despite the regulation and, and sort of the growth of, of, of pipelines, one of the remarkable stats from your book is that, you know, these major sort of interstate pipelines were built in the 1920s and 30s, and, and they're still being used today, you know, with the original steel replaced. Even given all that in the Natural Gas Act of 1938, you know, until the 1950s, it was essentially, it, it was a, a byproduct that no one really wanted, right? Most natural gas was flared. What changed after after the Second World War? What When did it really become a more important fuel? Well, it was gradual and it was sort of this sort of like this type of thing where it was, um, you know, creeping, you know, up and up in, in terms of its uh, usage and importance, but it kept being produced as a byproduct. So really kind of no one paid it mind until, you know, one day, which was basically in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, there wasn't enough of it. And then it, then all of a sudden it became a crisis. But I mean, a couple things, a couple things happened. You know, there was this monumental decision, the Supreme Court decision in 1954. It's called the uh, Phillips case. And Phillips, you know, which, you know, became ConocoPhillips, was uh, the largest gas producer at the time. And they had this contract to sell gas to uh, essentially Michigan, you know, Detroit area. And a couple things happened and the, and the, the rate was challenged. And basically the court said, OK, we are now regulating essentially all gas producers as if they were public utilities rather than just letting kind of free market rules apply. In that case, again, 1954 ended up being very detrimental for the industry, for the upstream industry uh, and for the industry as a whole for the next several decades. But it didn't actually, you know, the shortages didn't materialize until late in the 1960s and, and really get bad until the early 1970s, like 1973, 74. So it's like, how can how can this be called a monumental decision when 20 years lapsed between its being passed and shortages creeping up? And, you know, over those 20 years, well, demand was growing. But then again, so was production and oil production and gas production along with it. But also what was happening was that because any producer was regulated, if he sold into interstate commerce, there was a an increasingly important intrastate market that popped up in those states that produced a lot of gas, which is basically Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana, like mm-hmm. the Southwest. Mm-hmm. And in those states, they basically, you know, had a lot of gas, and now they had producers who were, you know, were kind of opting to keep the gas in state or had a preference for it. And so they built their entire industries up on natural gas. So, you know, whereas in the Northeast and the Midwest at that time, very little, if any, electricity was generated using natural gas as a fuel source. It was all mostly coal and some hydropower and then eventually nuclear later on. In the Southwest, in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, it was all natural gas. I mean, 95 percent of their power in the 1960s was generated from natural gas. And in every one of their, you know, boilers and essentially industrial furnaces, gas was the fuel, right? And, and, and over that time, the Gulf Coast became kind of the world's preeminent uh, refinery region and petrochemical region, largely because they produced a lot of oil and gas there. And also because after World War II, Europe and the rest of the industrialized world was in tatters, right? They, they, the, all of their industrial, heavy industrial um, facilities were severely damaged by, you know, in the war. So it left the, the U.S. and the Gulf Coast in particular kind of as I say, like the preeminent petrochemical and refining region in the world, which caused 
natural gas demand to to rise even even faster than you know oil demand. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's let's move move along the story. So we get to the 1980s, and the story of regulation becomes the story of of deregulation. You you know you quote Francis Fukushima and the end of history, and sort of capitalism wins and liberali- liberalization wins. It all seems sort of falling into place, but. But the process of creating a natural gas market was anything but smooth, right? Or, you know, the process of, of, of natural gas becoming a commodity was anything but smooth. Yeah, I mean, it had been a very vertically integrated uh, industry. You essentially have three tiers of the industry, the upstream, the midstream, and the downstream, right? The upstream is the production, the midstream is the, the pipelines, and the downstream is essentially the utilities, the distribution companies. At first, all three were vertically integrated, and then you know they they lost production, but you still had the you know the other two, and then you know then you had to essentially break this up, and um, you know and 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 have different people transacting with you know many different counterparties. So at a base level, it was like it's a big entrenched industry, and this was in the 1980s. You didn't have Google, so you had to li- literally know who to call, right? So if I want so. You know, we're okay. So now we're deregulating the gas markets, right? So now a you know a trader like you know like Mercuria, the company that I work for, can come in and and move gas on a pipeline. We can be a shipper. Great. Who do we buy from and who do we sell to? Right. We've never known these people. We've never talked to them before. The pipeline. Has. So now you know, and it's you know the year is 1982, right? You know, and we're starting to deregulate a little bit. Like, what do I do? You know, like I knock on the door. <laughs> so there was, there was logistical issues like that to overcome. And then then there was the fact that um, it takes time in any market, I think, to build up liquidity, to kind of decide what your benchmark points are, to decide what your contracts look like. I mean, right now, there is fairly standardized contracts for buying and selling, you know, physical gas to, to and from different people. You know, we have a gas day that starts at 9 a.m. Central Time, right? Like it's agreed upon that that's that's what a that's what a gas day is. We have contracts with all you know all, all the terms and conditions. Not all, but most are like just they're they're generic. You know, all this that had to develop slowly over time. It took years to do. Sure. Well, and and then we get to the final stretch. You write in the book as well that if you fell asleep, sort of Rip Van Winkle style in 2000, and then you woke up 20 years later in 2020, you would be shocked by the gas world, even though the market was was exactly the same. And a lot of that has to do with the shale revolution and, and the technology to un- unleash uh, all this extra gas. Tell us a little bit about that that final shift to get us to where we are today. Yeah, sure. And I, I think a lot of folks in the industry are familiar with the story of like, you know, reversing all of the... Um, kind of traditional um, Gulf Coast and Southwest to Northeast and Midwest pipelines, right? Like we still call, you know, a lot of these pipelines that move is from the traditional producing regions, Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, to the traditional consuming regions, especially the Northeast and Appalachia. We still say forward haul is moving from South to North, from the Gulf to the Northeast. Mm -hmm. But in reality, those pipes for the past more than five years at this point, depending on the pipe, are all in in backhaul mode where there are, you know, we're sending gas from Pennsylvania into Texas, into Louisiana. So, and that's for two things. I mean, one, the biggest one by far was the production story, which was, yes, the shale revolution, and particularly in Appalachia, which has grown from a, a very modest production region that was doing like 
you know, a B and a half a day, one and a half, you know, billion cubic feet a day of production in the pre-shale era to now doing about 34 billion cubic feet a day of the U.S. total of about 92, right? So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, you know, it's more than a third of the entire U.S. production is from a region that was almost nothing before. That essentially would, now it's being produced in, in Appalachia in excess of local demand. So you have to move it somewhere else. And, and like you said earlier, it's, it's, it's a lot of these same pipes that were built in, in some cases as far back as the 1920s and in many cases, you know, later than that. But in all cases, with most of the original steel having been replaced, that we're moving gas into the Northeast and are now moving gas out of the Northeast. And the Northeast is the uh, now largest gas export region in the country. But the Rip Van Winkle comment, you know, cuts both ways. It's like, so the dynamics have totally shifted, right, over the past Call it, I mean, really even 10 years, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years since shale became, uh, you know, a thing. But, you know, the way that we do business hasn't changed almost at all, right? I mean, and, and to the point where you could pull up a, a trading screen, what we now use mostly as ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, which is the exchange kind of of choice and for North American gas, uh, or at least U.S. gas. And it looks starkly similar to Enron Online. It's basically the same, same idea. And the instruments are mostly the same. So it's, you know, on, on one way, it's like if you woke up Rip Van Winkle like after 20 years, you would think that you would just everything got, you know, turned inside out. But you'd know how to do your job. Yeah. There's just a lot more gas and it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure everyone knows, like, you know, the meme stocks, the meme stonks, you know, uh, stonks only go up. You know, we, we joke uh, on the desk that uh, gas only goes down. Yeah. Except except for what happened in, in February when, when things went drastically the other way. Tell us a little bit about what happened in, in February. You know, what, what did we learn? You wrote this piece in Texas Monthly where you basically said it was a story of, of energy installations not being winterized and also a lack of, of regulation. Is that is that in general your take? Sure. And so, so, you know, this is my personal view on this, right? It's not it's not Mercurius view. It's, it's Charlie Blanchard's view. But a lot went wrong. Like I, I, I almost think that part of the definition of the of the word crisis should have like a lot of things going wrong at the same time, right? So, what's the cause of the crisis? Well, you know, what are the causes of the crisis? One cause was the fact that natural gas didn't show up, right? So this is kind of the thrust of that Texas Monthly article that I wrote, which is which is basically saying that. Were gas supplies to have remained online, you know, as they were, um, not that there would not have been a tight market and we probably still would have had to shed some load in ERCOT, but it would not have been nearly as bad. It would have been proper like, you know, rolling brownouts, maybe an hour here, hour and a half there. It wouldn't have been several days of continued blackout. So, you know, when it, when it gets cold, gas can freeze off when the wells and the production facilities have not been winterized, right? So why would not they have been winterized, right? Like why does gas not freeze off in Denver or in North Dakota when it's, you know, 20 degrees or even minus 20 degrees, whereas it did freeze off in Texas when it was 20 degrees? And it's really all about economics and the probability of these things happening. And um, a, a lack of any regulation saying that they need to prepare for these events, right? It doesn't get this cold very often in Texas. 
it's not worth the extra money to winterize the wells. When it is a problem, it's usually a problem for uh, you know a couple of days, maybe you know if that. So you know, kind of, of course they didn't winterize, right? And no one was telling them that they had to. And and by the way, I'm not advocating for anyone telling them that they they have to, because it gets very sloppy. How do you tell someone to winterize a well? Like to what to what temperature? Winterize to so it will produce unaffected until the temperatures in Midland, Texas drop to 15 degrees for three hours. You know, it becomes very, very difficult to write that regulation. And then it would become more difficult still to enforce it, right? So it's like, okay, well, wells go down, production facilities go down all the time for a variety of reasons. So if you went offline, would you be able to prove that it was because they hadn't winterized their wells? Yeah. So Winston Churchill said, the farther back you can look, the farther forward you're likely to see. You've spent all this time looking back over the natural gas market in the United States. What's next? What's going to happen post-COVID, Biden administration, uh, energy transition? Are we still looking at a world? I mean, natural gas demand in the United States has essentially grown since 1985. Are we still looking at a world where natural gas demand grows? What's your take on that? Demand, as in demand uh, for gas used in the United States, uh, no, I don't think it will grow over the longer term. I mean, uh, one thing that we on the desk have been a bit flabbergasted at is just how much wind generation is is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Now, in a way that's expected, we built a lot of wind. I think it was like 11 gigawatts year on year, or it might, it might it was 21. It's a lot of wind. So, I mean, we run those through our models, right? We're not uh, we're not flabbergasted by the, the fact that there's more wind, but wind speeds have been enormous uh, for the past essentially 30 days. It's been crazy, actually. You will have noticed it in Texas. There are a lot of leaves on the ground. There's more and more wind generation coming, and there's more and more solar generation coming. And this is offset by, you know, more coal retirements and more nuclear retirements, but uh, when you look at the numbers, the new wind and solar greatly outweighs the retiring coal and nuclear. So, you know, and the, and the industrial renaissance story that's kind of played out, right? Those investments have been made. But but then you have these two areas that aren't technically demand, but they you know look like demand, which are exports. So exports of LNG and exports to Mexico. Exports of LNG are continuing to grow, right? Like, you know, we're setting new records every day for LNG exports, and we're exporting almost 12 billion cubic feet a day right now, which, again, is against a production number of 92, which is so it's a, it's a pretty big chunk, right? That's just LNG. Uh, sorry, LNG. Add, add another six for Mexico, right? Add another six and change for Mexico, and we think more like 6.5 this summer. Yeah, I mean, so so exports are a big part of the market, and those are growing and will continue to faster for LNG at this point than for Mexico. We think as we bring on you know another another essentially two new facilities over the next year for LNG. One of which is Calcasieu Pass in southern Louisiana. Another one's another train, the sixth train at Sabine Pass. So the market size will still net grow, but you're you're going to have essentially losing you know domestic demand. And then gaining export markets. So, you know, what does that mean in a macro sense? It means that we should start to see, you know, convergence in global markets, right? Where Henry Hub trades closer to NBP and TTF and JKM, which are respectively TTF is continental Europe, NBP is the UK, and, and JKM is the Japan Korea markets, sort of the Asian LNG delivered markets. And those should converge. 
that also depends on what happens, how cold the winter is, how mild the winter is. It, it, you know, we're, we're ultimately we're a derivative of the weather still in natural gas. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You mentioned Mexico. Let's let's uh, let me ask the final question here. What have you learned from your experience writing this book and researching the book that might help to sort of understand the development of the market in Mexico? In many ways, it might be where the United States was, you know, say in the eighties or the nineties, but with you know the advantage of of that knowledge. What what can you say to that? As you know better than I do, um, Mexico from from a U.S. guy's point of view. Um, Mexico is like, okay, so they either buy at Houston Ship Channel or Waha type pricing. In reality, they buy in South Texas um, and they have a lot of transport in both West Texas and Arizona. But like those are kind of the, the pricing indices, right? Which means that from a U.S. point of view, like they don't really have a, a gas market, right? It's just that they, they buy at these two or you know, several receipt points in, in, you know, in Texas and, and Arizona, and then, you know, it becomes a bit of a, a mystery, but the gas is essentially, you know, carried to where it needs to go. And you obviously that's like that share of the market, you know, our, our U.S. exports to Mexico have increased massively over the past five years, while domestic production in Mexico has dropped massively. But I mean, there is still, of course, the market served by Pemex production, you know, in the south of the country, which you know doesn't rely on U.S. exports. And there's also you know, LNG to kind of fill both a balancing role and, and somewhat of a supply role as well. So it's a very disjointed market, right? It's not like a, it's not really a true connected market. Maybe the biggest reason for that is, is that it's not truly competitive on the, you know, who can ship on the pipelines. And Pemex still and CFE still are, you know, the biggest shippers in the country. And why would there need to be a market for gas when there are essentially it is it, you know it's it, a, a path the transportation path is essentially controlled by by one party by just one party right the market's whatever they it, they tell you it is and I'm not even saying that's that's unfair like and they could be very, being very fair about it and doing it at cost plus but like when you look at the U.S. we can you know move gas across these you know. 15 or 20,000, you know, meters and we can be very competitive. We can, you know, we're just saying, well, okay, so I'm 215 bid at, you know, 217 offer. That's a tight market. And um, we can, we can create that tight market because, well, first of all, we have the right to, to move gas around. And, and second of all, we have to create a tight market. Otherwise someone else is going to eat our lunch. Those conditions don't exist. So I think it's like, you have to really kind of go back to the fundamentals of like, well, okay, so you can't just want a nice transparent market. You can't just give people something to trade and expect them to trade it. It seems that way right now in like equity and, and crypto markets, but you know, in, in, in the physical commodity markets, uh, you need to, to back this stuff up with real structural reforms. And, you know, you need to also have, you know, contract standardization and, and frankly, some contract sanctity, um, knowing that, you know, the rules won't change. Okay. Very interesting, Charlie. Thank you so much for that insight. I really enjoyed the book. As I mentioned, everyone should go out and get it. Again, it's called The Extraction State, A History of Natural Gas in America. Charlie Blanchard, thanks very much. Chris, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Natural Gas Intelligence Hub and Flow podcast. Again, this is Chris Lenton, the editor of the Mexico Gas Price Index, a daily service that sheds light on the natural gas market in Mexico. If you're interested in knowing more about the Mexican natural gas market, 
visit naturalgasintel.com and do a search for Mexico or click on the Mexico tab. We have tons of insightful news, commentary, columns, and pricing data that expand on what we've talked about. It is our belief here at NGI that market transparency empowers markets, businesses, and communities. And that is what we are trying to achieve with this podcast. If you like us, please do follow us, give us a rating, and leave a comment. We're so excited to connect with you and look forward to the next time. In the meantime, stay safe.